Good morning. I have uh, looked forward to this for some time uh, when I found out I was going to get the opportunity again. And I have also felt the weight and responsibility of, of this uh, to proclaim God's Word. And I have been reminded, and, and not that I um, haven't always, but I, it makes me appreciate what Tim does every Sunday. Uh, out of 52 Sundays out of every year, he's up here 45 to 48 times. That's a, a weighty burden to do, um, and it's a heavy calling. And so I appreciate him, and we should as well, because this is, though I've looked forward to it, it is, I, I have felt the weight of it. With that said, let me uh, go ahead and get started uh, with point one. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45, and we're going to go through verse, or chapter 21, verse 4. So if you want to go ahead and open there, we'll be reading from there in a moment. But I'd like to begin this morning, I believe it's important to show the context of where we are, or better stated, how did Israel as a nation and people arrive at a place where they could possibly reject Jesus, their promised Messiah? At this point, they have the entirety of the Old Testament Scripture. They have all of the promises that God made and all the promises that he fulfilled in Israel. Yet somehow, they've missed it. The simple answer is the sin of unbelief, but it goes much further than that. Pastor Tim often mentions two dates that are very significant for us to remember when it comes to Israel. The first is 722 B.C. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The second is 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah is taken captive by the Babylonians. From the nation being divided into two separate kingdoms in 930 B.C. to the final Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C., Israel would be subjected to the rule of foreign nations and empires they would not return to being a sovereign nation. However, in God's providence, they would be allowed to return by King Cyrus of Syria to rebuild the temple and the wall around the city, as recorded for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But Israel would remain under the rule of the Assyrians. It is around this time that the Old Testament scriptures are completed with the prophet Malachi ushering in a roughly 400 years of silence. It is during this time of silence that Israel slips further and further into apostasy. This period, known as the intertestamental or second temple period, is a worthwhile study for those that might be interested. And a few things of note during this period. One, the second temple construction was completed. Two, the position of high priest was bestowed by a foreign government to the highest bidder. Three, we see the religious sects of Pharisees and Sadducees develop during this era. And four, the conflict that raged throughout this period influenced a military concept of Messiah. While this only scratches the surface of what took place during this period, I believe that it is important for helping us understand the atmosphere in which Jesus entered his earthly ministry. Jesus' ministry took place in a time of great turmoil, a time of great conflict in the lives of the people of Israel. Pastor John MacArthur, commenting on this time of turmoil during Jesus' ministry, says, 
Never were false teachers more aggressive than during the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was as if hell itself amassed its heaviest assault on any one person on the Lord Jesus during those three years. And we would understand that. We would understand that in order to thwart the gospel purposes of God, Satan unleashed everything he had on Jesus Christ. And when we ask who were the agents of hell, who were the agents of Satan, who attempted to thwart the purposes of God? Were they the criminals of the, in the culture? Were they the tax collectors, the traitors? Were they the prostitutes, the thugs, the thieves? No. The emissaries and agents of Satan were the most devout, the most religious, the most respected religious leaders in Israel. The scribes and the Pharisees, along with the Sadducees and Herodians, they all came together against Jesus Christ. They amassed all their ability all their demonically designed spiritual ability to attack him, to bring him down, to thwart the purposes of God. Keep it in mind, the enemies of the gospel were and always are most formidable when they are religious, especially the Pharisees and the scribes because they control the dominant religion of Judaism at the time. They are relentless in their assault on Jesus. Now to our text. If you would read with me, beginning in chapter 20, verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honors at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Teach us this morning from your word. Help me to be faithful to and communicate clearly the truthfulness of your word. May you be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. To further place this conversation in context this morning, it's important to understand where we are in the text. Chapter 20 begins with Jesus coming to the temple to teach. Verse 1 says that Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Jesus is just days away from being betrayed, arrested, and crucified. Knowing this, he still comes to the temple. He continues to teach. He continues to preach the gospel. He continues to show his compassion for the people. The same compassion demonstrated in his lament over Jerusalem upon his entry into the city. There is still time to repent, to turn from their sin, to see who he is, their promised Messiah. However, these religious leaders want nothing to do with Jesus. They have sought to destroy him his three, throughout his three-year ministry. And they are about to get what they have desired, or so they thought. Jesus has answered all of their questions, but it was not answers that they wanted. They wanted to trap him, to accuse him, so that they can have him executed. And as we saw from our text last week, Jesus gives them exactly what they want. Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. It's a messianic psalm. He tells them exactly who he is. He, Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One of God. 
It is at this point that Jesus turns his attention to his disciples. And except out of necessity at his trial, Jesus will no longer address the religious leaders. He speaks only to his disciples until he is delivered into the hands of the religious leaders at his arrest. Point number two. Verse 45 says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Jesus has been teaching in the temple all day. The people were coming in and out of the temple, conducting their business as was their custom. Keep in mind that the business of the temple during the time that Jesus ministered resembles nothing like what was prescribed in the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, it is at this point that Jesus turns his attention solely towards his disciples and issues this warning from verses 46 and 47 of our text. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The other two synoptic gospels gives us a parallel account of this passage. Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 23. Matthew's account is a more detailed account. Matthew devotes an entire chapter to Jesus' warning to his disciples. Here Jesus issues seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe here means damnation, cursing. Jesus is pronouncing horrendous, horrific judgment on them. These are harsh words from Jesus. We can understand why they hated him. And if we are honest, it's texts like these that cause problems for even us today. Much of what passes for modern evangelicalism today would have a hard time fitting these words of Jesus into their theology. Because in their theology, they have created a Jesus that is all loving. And what is meant by all loving is that Jesus affirms me in my sin. Jesus wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Much of what passes for modern evangelicalism has created a Jesus not found in the pages of Scripture. They have created an idol and placed Jesus' name on that idol. I can hardly think of a more terrifying prospect. It's not a savior that they desire. It's a cheerleader they desire. Make no mistake, Jesus is all loving, which is why he didn't come to affirm us in our sin, but rather the second person of the triune God, God the Son, put on human flesh, stepped out of heaven and entered time and space, lived a perfect life, died a death he did not deserve, was laid in a tomb, rose from that tomb, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, so that all who look to him, have faith in him, will be forgiven of their sin and reconciled to God the Father. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is our Savior. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, we will enjoy him forever. This is true love. As we continue taking a look at our passage, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels of their garments. In Numbers chapter 15, God commands Moses to tell the people of Israel to make tassels on the corner, corners of their garments throughout their generations. These tassels were for the people to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them. Remember them and do them. 
It's not enough to just remember. They must also do them. Why? So that they would not follow their own heart and eyes leading them into playing the harlot. God has given the people of Israel His law. And now He has given them daily reminders. As the people begin their day and they put on their robes, they would be reminded of the commandments of God. And as they are reminded of His law and to do the commandments of His law, they are kept from pursuing their sinful desires. I believe it is important to note here as we continue that Luke's as well as Mark's account says to beware of the scribes, but Matthew warns them of the scribes and Pharisees. They are essentially one and the same. Scribes are Pharisees. Not all Pharisees are scribes, but scribes are Pharisees. They are the experts in the law. They would have been experts in the law of God. And as we heard from in our scripture this reading this morning from Matthew 15, the tradition of the elders. As we continue with Jesus' warning, he says that they love to be greeted in the marketplaces. The best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They loved to be greeted as they moved about among the people on a daily basis. They desired to be greeted with titles of dignity such as rabbi. Rabbi means exalted teacher, excellency, most knowledgeable one, most wise. They loved to be honored by men. They sought self above all else, and they did these things under the pretense of holiness. In fact, in the Talmud, Sanhedrin 88 is the location, it says that it is more punishable to go against the words of a scribe than against the words of Scripture. Now the Talmud is a collection of Jewish, Jewish traditions passed down through the generations claiming the Torah as its root source. However, whatever help the Talmud was to the people of Israel throughout their generations, it is not an inspired text. It is in every way the works of man and as seen in this excerpt from Sanhedrin 88, it, is, it sets itself up as superior to Scripture. For all practical purposes, they have documented evidence of their drift into apostasy. Again, these religious leaders are the, the, uh, these are the traditions of the elders from Matthew 15 that they have accused Jesus of breaking. All right, we'll take a look at this... Um, passage from Matthew 15 uh, closer in a moment, but for now let's look at Jesus' warning again. While he has turned his attention to his disciples, his words can still be heard by everyone in the temple, including these religious leaders. They hear Jesus warning his disciples to be careful with and watch out for the scribes. They are indeed dangerous men, ungodly, self-serving men. In one of Jesus' earliest encounters with these religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is once again teaching. He's teaching in the synagogue. This is the account where Jesus heals the man with a withered hand. And they question him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They reveal their heart in this question. How wicked must one be to see another human being, a fellow image bearer, being healed from a debilitating infirmity and questioned the healer about its lawfulness. Why? Because it was on the Sabbath. If any one of us lost the use of one of our hands, it would make life very difficult very quick. In the first century, it would make life exponentially more difficult. This man, man would have to depend on the help of others just to stay alive. 
I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suppose that his very reason for coming to the temple was to seek relief, to seek assistance, to seek healing from these religious leaders. In fact, this is most likely the case because Matthew, Mark, and Luke each record this encounter of the man with a withered hand. And as a side note, while every story and every verse of Scripture is important, if a story is repeated three times, it is repeated for a reason. It's repeated for amplification, to draw our attention. And in Mark and Luke's account of this story, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, used this occasion to attempt to, to trap Jesus. They wanted to see if he would indeed heal this man on the Sabbath. So they must have known why this man was there. This is likely not the first time the man came to them for healing. And in the mercy and providence of God, today this man would be healed. And in doing so, reveal the wickedness of these religious leaders. Jesus doesn't even touch the man. He simply says, stretch out your hand. And his hand was healed. This enraged the religious leaders. And they immediately left and sought how they might destroy Jesus. You see, these religious leaders sought honor and desired to be worshipped in places where God and God alone was, is to be honored and worshipped. They loved greetings. They would rather be known by men than to be known by God. They are the ones Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. They loved the best seats and places of honor. They sought the elevation of man. They sought the honor of men over and above God. They have created a self-exalted, man-centered religious system that at best loosely resembles that which God set forth in the Old Testament Scriptures. Returning to the final two warnings issued by Jesus to his disciples concerning the scribes, Jesus says that they devour widows' houses and for appearance sake make long prayers. Widows were a protected class in, of people in Israel as set forth in the law of God. Along with the orphans as well as the sojourners, so let's take a look at a few of these verses. One is from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome. God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. From Deuteronomy 26, 12 and 13. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. You shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house, and also have given it to the Levite, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. And finally, from Exodus chapter 22, 23-24. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with a sword. And your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. As we see from these Old Testament passages, women... Widows were among a protected class of people. God, through his law given to Moses, makes provisions for Levites, orphans, sojourners, and widows. God's law, the same law as we mentioned earlier, 
they were to remember and do makes provision for widows. And as religious leaders, they were to lead the people in obedience to the law. But these are wicked men. In Jesus' warning from Matthew 23, Jesus accuses them of tithing from everything that they have all the way down to offering their spices, yet they neglect the weightier matters of the law. They completely ignore the passages that we just read. They are hypocrites, blind guides. They have missed the very heart of God's law. These commands are not to be done out of compulsion, but out of compassion. Compassion for the sojourner, the orphan, and the widow. The widow, orphan, and sojourner would have been among the most vulnerable people in Israel and of any society. We understand this even today. While these people's circumstances would not be as dire as they were in Old Testament Israel or as in Jesus' day, the widow, orphan, and sojourner remain the most vulnerable in every society, regardless of the era that they live in. So this brings us to chapter uh, 21. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting in their gifts in the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Historically, when people come to this passage in Luke chapter 21, the message that is delivered or preached is often almost universally a message on sacrificial giving. However, I believe that we miss the context as well as the heart of what's happening here in the temple. Also, I believe that this is one of the unfortunate chapter breaks in the Bible. <clears throat> it says that Jesus looked up. This is part of the same conversation from the end of chapter 20. This passage is a type of test case, if you will, of what Jesus has just warned his disciples about. Here is a poor widow bringing her offering to the temple. It says that she put in two small copper coins. The word here for copper coins is lepta, and lepta is Jewish coinage. It's the smallest of the Jewish coins. In today's economy, the lepta is worth one-eighth of a penny. She put in two. So she gave one quarter of a penny, and that was all she had. In fact, it says that it was all she had to live on. Here, Jesus is not necessarily pointing to the amount of money she gave as much as he is pointing to the fact that the amount of money she gave all she had is directly due to the scribes and their system. Their system has created her poverty. They are responsible for her poverty. This would have been in the temple treasury. And the temple treasury was located in the section of the temple called the Court of the Women. There was an inner court in the temple where only men could go, but everyone was allowed in the Court of Women. This is precisely why the treasury was placed in the Court of the Women, and this is precisely why Je also why Jesus would always come here to teach. In the temple treasury, there were 13 shofar, or horn-shaped offering bowls or containers. How does Jesus know how much she put into the offering? Well, aside from the fact that he's Jesus and he could have used divine knowledge, it was also custom for them. As they moved in and <clears throat> about the temple conducting their business, that they would announce how much money they were bringing to the treasury. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take a closer look at that passage from Matthew 15 from our scripture reading this morning. 
In this passage, the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders. Jesus answered to them, Why do you break the law of God for the sake of your tradition? Here Jesus cites the fifth commandment. You shall honor your father and mother. Jesus fought, charges them further, saying, But you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me as given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Not only have these religious leaders neglected the commands of God to care for the widow, they have also spiritualized their lack of compassion and their disobedience to the commands of God by saying that what they would have given to the widow, they have given to God. Their lack of compassion for the people that they were meant to serve is on display. Their utter disdain for the commands of God is abundantly clear. They are self-serving man-pleasers in every way. They have created a system, a religious system of self that will be their undoing. By worldly standards, their system has made them very wealthy. And by worldly standards, their system has brought them great honor. However, their system only pretends to be of God and concerned for the things of God. They are hypocrites. Citing the prophet Isaiah, Jesus asks, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The testimony of this widow is an indictment on these religious leaders. It says that she gave all that she had to live on. They have preyed on the people. These so-called experts in the law have neglect, neglected the very heart of the law. And I don't believe that it's too much of a stretch to say that this widow, in giving all that she had to live on, would leave the temple that day and soon die. Unlike us, the Bible is not given to hyperbole. So when it said that she had given all that she had to live on, we can expect, unless something drastically changes in the life of this widow, she is going to die soon. And these religious leaders are to blame. Again, Jesus has turned his attention solely towards his disciples. He will no longer speak to or teach the religious leaders. So for all practical purposes, their fate has been sealed. From the passage in Isaiah that Jesus cites in Matthew 15, it speaks of a siege in, in, of Jerusalem. And quoting from the prophet, Jesus says very clearly that the prophet was speaking of them. And because Jesus says this, we can know for certain that the words of the prophet have not been taken out of context. Therefore, the verses preceding the section in which Jesus quotes Isaiah speaks of a blinding. It says that, <clears throat> that the words will be like the words of a book that is sealed. They cannot be read. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, blind guides. These are blind men. But I find it interesting that though they are blind, they seem to have perceived correctly the teaching of the parable on the wicked tent, uh, the teaching on the parable of the wicked tenant at the beginning of this confrontation. It says that, <clears throat> that they perceived that Jesus was speaking of them. They are correct. They are the ones who have killed the prophets represented by the servants of the parable. And they are the ones that have also killed Jesus represented by the son in the parable. And in a few days, they will do just that. They will have Jesus crucified. So while the widow's fate seems dire, it remains uncertain. But these religious leaders, their fate has been sealed. This is a tragic story. And as I stated at the beginning of this message, how could they have missed the promises of God concerning the Messiah? 
they have all the prophecies in concerning the Messiah. It has been said that there are over 320 Old Testament promises and prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus from the announcement of His birth to the wise men from the East coming to seek the child that has been born King of the Jews to His miracles of healing to His entry into Jerusalem ultimately ending with His crucifixion. <clears throat> when the wise men from the East entered Jerusalem they come to King Herod inquiring who is this who has been born King of the Jews? Herod summons the scribes and the chief priests. They both answer, citing Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The chief priests and the scribes answer Herod correctly. Yet it appears that there was no intrigue as to who or why King Herod had summoned them. They had just cited a messianic prophecy. And it appears that they simply returned to their homes. Not even curious as to why or who Herod was asking this of them. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy from Zechariah has just been fulfilled upon Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The prophetic bells and whistles should have been sounding throughout the land during the life and ministry of Jesus. Yet, as we have seen, they have completely missed who Jesus is, their promised Messiah. Their promised King has been ministering to them for the last three years. He is standing before them. It should have been very clear who Jesus is. Yet tragically, they've missed it. And as we have seen, even their blindness is a fulfillment of prophecy. Point three. So this begs the question, if they missed it, what are we missing today? What are the promises of God from both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament? What are we missing can we learn anything from the example of Israel? Do we believe the promises of God? Have we got everything right in our theology? I believe we know the answer to that question. So again, the question is, what are we missing? Personally, I know there are things that I'm missing. In fact, I'm currently working through a couple of things, things that I have been uncertain of, as well as things that I've held with a manner of certainty Things that less than six or seven months ago I saw much differently than I do now. Things that I'm still working through. Things with which I have come under, great, under a greater conviction than before. Things I believe are true. Things I believe the church would greatly benefit from. Things historically the church has held throughout their, her history. There has been a recent shift, and by recent I mean over the last 150 years, a shift that has brought about a decidedly pessimistic view in the modern church of the promises of God. As well as the role or function of the Old Testament law, God's law in the life of the New Testament believer. It is, is it binding on the life of the believer? Is it neutral? Is it relevant at all? I believe, uh, these I believe are important questions for us to ask and consider. I'm not here this morning to try to convince you. <clears throat> I cannot do that. 
I am, however, suggesting that I think it would be healthy and helpful if we ask these questions and consider them. What can we learn from Israel? God gives Moses the law at Mount Sinai and tell Moses, tells Moses to give it to the people. The people are immediately disobedient. God judges an entire generation and marches them to death in the wilderness. God brings the people to the outskirts of the promised land and gives Moses the law a second time as recorded for us in the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, God says that there are blessings for obedience and there are curses for disobedience. And as we see and read, Israel for the most part is a disobedient people. Perhaps the most successful and prosperous time of Israel was during the 40-year reign of King David. Go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 28. The blessings for obedience are indeed glorious, but the curses for disobedience are horrific. And now I'm not suggesting for a second that our righteousness, our standing before God is dependent on our obedience to God's law. In Christ Jesus, the curse for the law has been done away with. It has been abolished. <clears throat> there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in regards to the law. Jesus has fulfilled all the law and the commandments. What I am suggesting is that Scripture is abundantly clear. God's law is just, it's right, it's good. It does lead to human flourishing. If God's law was not important, if His law was not good, why would Jesus come to fulfill the law? Why would that be necessary? He clearly stated that He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We know this instinctively to be true. Why? Because God has written His law on our hearts. We know this because we still follow God's moral law today. We know that it's wrong to lie. We know that it's wrong to murder. We know that idolatry is wrong. God gave Israel three types of laws. Moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. God has also set up governments, specifically the family, the church, and the state. I think that we are all in agreement concerning God's moral law. The question becomes, what do we do with God's civil law? The setting up and governing of a society. And what do we do with God's ceremonial law? The ceremonial law, the laws concerning blended fabrics and the dietary laws, have been abolished. We read from Acts chapter 10 where Luke records us, for us Peter's vision. So then what do we do concerning the civil laws? Laws governing a society. I believe that there are clear principles to, following, to follow concerning God's civil law. This is where the governments come into play. This is a bit of an oversimplification. But the family's primary command is to be fruitful and multiply. And as God blesses you with children, we are to train them, to teach them to follow God. The primary command of the church is to shepherd, to teach God's people, God's word, and to disciple them and to take the message of the gospel to the nations. And then finally, <clears throat> the role of the state is the sword. The state is charged with carrying out the punishment on the lawbreaker. I believe when the, that when these are properly ordered in a society and the governments, the governments stick to their primary roles, a society will flourish. However, when these are not properly ordered, then that society will experience great difficulty. 
For instance, when a family abdicates its responsibility of training its children and gives that responsibility to the state, a society experiences difficulty. We all know this to be true. I'm the product of a public education. My children are the product of a public education. I'm not, <coughs> excuse me, I'm in no way trying to indict those that are part of a public education system, whether as students or as teachers. That's not my point. The point I'm trying to make is that I believe as followers of Christ, we should consider what has become normal for us and ask the question, does this honor God and His law? Again, we know these things to be true. We have seen in our day the fruits of a public education. There are thousands of children, indeed millions, that have been indoctrinated by the state. They have been indoctrinated by godless pagans. And, and we, and I am included, have sat by very passively as we have watched it happen. The foolishness, the decadence of our society can be traced directly to the family as well as the church allowing the state, in fact, handing over to the state that which God has designed for both the family and the church. So what are we to do? Is there anything we can do? The answer is yes, absolutely. And also no. As we look to the example of Israel throughout her history, Israel's problem wasn't a lack of knowledge. It wasn't that there were disobedient people. As I stated at the beginning, Israel's problem was a sin problem. They had a heart problem. Without a changed heart, no amount of obedience to God's law will bring about human flourishing. The Apostle Paul says that by works of the law, no man will be justified. Israel thought that they could achieve righteousness by works of the law. They, sought, they thought that they belonged to God because they were sons of Abraham. Jesus, speaking to the religious leaders from John chapter 8, says, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Israel has a heart problem. So if we believe that we can achieve righteousness have true success, experience, in, experience human flourishing apart from a changed heart, we make the same mistake Israel made. Apart from the regenerating work of Christ, the saving work of Christ, the heart of stone being changed to a heart of flesh, we make the same mistake Israel made. Everyone in the church is familiar with Jesus' final words to the disciples recorded in Matthew 28. It's the Great Commission. Evangelize the nations, right? We all agree on that. But that's not all. Jesus also says to disciple the nations. Jesus also says to baptize the nations. Jesus also says to teach the nations all that I have commanded you. By what authority does Jesus say this? All authority. On earth as well as in heaven. What lies outside of heaven and earth? Nothing. From the glories in heaven to the tiniest molecule in all of creation, Jesus is Lord of both. He has authority over both, over everything. Nothing lies outside the sovereign power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this important? It goes back to the pessimism I mentioned earlier. If Jesus has all authority, as he most assuredly does, 
then who or what can possibly stay his hand from accomplishing all that he has promised? No one. Nothing will be able to keep him from accomplishing all that he pleases. When God says, I will do this or that, we can be certain that he will indeed do it. From, the, from Psalm 113, Blessed is the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to, the setting, to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. From the prophet Habakkuk, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the sea. From the prophet Isaiah, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I find it quite interesting that Jesus' final words to these religious leaders are also the final words of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. They both quote Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, signaling the end of one old covenant and ushering in the new, the new covenant. When Peter had finished preaching on Pentecost, they were cut to the heart. And 3,000 souls were added that day. <clears throat> it also goes on to say that as they continued to meet and teach, there were added daily those that were being saved. This has been God's pattern over the last 2,000 years. And this will be God's pattern until Jesus returns. Do we believe this? Because in God's great mercy, He has called us out of this world to be His agents, of which all of His purposes are accomplished. Why does it matter? Because if we believe in Christ's victory, Christ's redemption of all, of all creation, optimism fuels desire. Pessimism fuels apathy. Do we desire to align our families, the church, society in accordance with God's will, or are we indifferent? I believe that it matters how we answer. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not left us as ones without hope. Hope that is assured, certain. Hope that passes understanding. Continue to teach us, sanctify us, give us an unquenchable thirst for your word, and may that thirst fuel our desire to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nations, to disciple the nations, to teach them all that you have commanded for your purposes and for your glory. Amen.